In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Through grace of God, we will study tonight, chapter 6, from the Gospel of St. Matthew. And as you know, chapter 5, 6, and 7 are about the Sermon on the Mountain. So, in chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mountain continues. And I can classify this chapter into three main sections. The first section is about how to perform the acts of righteousness in ways that please God. How to act and how to perform the acts of righteousness in a way that is pleasing to God. And then the second part is about the danger of materialism and how to overcome an anxiety about such things, about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. And the last part is how to make the kingdom of God and his righteousness our number one priority. So this is the summary of the chapter. Chapter 5, which actually is the first chapter in the Sermon of the Mountain, as I said, Sermon in the Mountain is covered by chapter 5, 6, and 7. So the first part of the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5, it spoke to what the inner attitude of the Christian should be. Our inner attitude, how it should be. That's why he started by the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are mournful. Blessed are those who are meek, etc. Chapter 6 is speak about how our inner attitude should affect our outer appearance. Because when we change from inside, also we will change it from outside. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is warning us from doing external actions that are not generated from a sincere heart generate to do external actions that does not match what we have inside our heart and this is what we call hypocrisy and why people do external actions that are not generated from sincere heart in order to be seen by men and be admired by them. And the Lord here is giving us three examples of acts of righteousness that should be offered in secret, that we should offer them in, the private, in our private lives, between us and God only, in order not to divert glory of God into glory of self. 
these acts of righteousness have the purpose of glorifying God. So if we start to do them in a way to show off, in a hypocritical way, then we are diverting the glory of God to glory of one's self. And these three acts of righteousness, he spoke about almsgiving, about prayer, and about fasting. So let's start from verse 1. From verse 1 to 4, it's about almsgiving. The Lord said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And I want to explain here that the Lord did not prohibit us from doing charitable deeds before men. But he said, don't do it before men with the purpose to be seen by them. To be seen by them. Because some charitable deeds, whether we like it or not, they will be done before men. So here the prohibition is not to do them before men, period. No. He said to us, don't do them before men to be seen by them to be seen by them. So, as if he is telling us, when we practice charitable deeds, we are not to do it with appearance in mind, that people will see me, that is what's in my mind. Our motive should not be to impress others with our Christian behavior. Yes, in chapter 5, the Lord told us, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So is there actually contradiction between letting our light to shine before men and not to do almsgiving before men to be seen by them? Actually, no. Actually, these two commandments are consistent with each other. Because actually, if we do our charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, then what is the goal here? The goal is self-glorification. But when the Lord said, let your light shine before men, he said that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, doing the charitable deeds with no intention to be seen by men, this is what glorifies God. But to do them in a hypocritical way, way to be seen by them, this actually will divert the glory of God to self-glorification. Uh, so here the Lord meant don't call attention to your charitable deeds when you do them 
don't try to call attention and make people attentive and see and watch what you are doing. Verse 2. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And until now, some people use this practice, like in fundraising activities. Sometimes they announce so-and-so contributed that much, so-and-so contributed that much, which actually is again the teaching of the scripture. This is like sounding a trumpet before men and we are trying to impress men. And the Lord made it very clear, those who are doing their charitable deeds this way, yes, they will get reward from people here on earth, but they will not be rewarded in heaven. They will get an earthly reward. They will be praised by men, but they will not get heavenly reward. That's why in verse 3 he told us, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So, to avoid putting ourselves in situation where we might be tempted to take the glory for something that should increase the glory of God, that's why he told us, you need to do it in secret. You need to do it in a way that your left hand even doesn't know what your right hand is doing. So the hypocrites, they give without sincerity. They give not because they want to glorify God, not because they praise God, but they give in order to get the attention of men. But when we give, we should give in secret. As he told us in verse 4, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. When we do our almsgiving secretly, God will reward us openly. The word openly means an open place. And here the Lord is referring to the last day when actually every secret thing will be made manifest. And here is actually an easy way to check your motives, to see if you really doing something for the Lord or not. Ask yourself, would you still do this good deed if you know that no one else would ever know you did it or not? So if we ask ourselves this question, this will help me to know I'm doing it to show off or I'm doing it for the glory of God. So let me assume that nobody would ever know what you did. 
Are you going to do it or not? This question will help us to examine our motive clearly. Then from verse 5, he gave us another example of how to do the works of righteousness properly, according to God's will, not in a hypocritical way. So in verse 5, he spoke about prayer. And he said, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And until now, we can see this. Some people from other religions, when they pray, they pray in open places to be seen and to be admired that they keep their canon of prayer. But the Lord told us in verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So, everybody needs to pray. The wrong way to pray when actually you make a public show of your prayer that the people may say you are a holy man, you are a saint. The Pharisees actually made all the efforts to pray in public and to get actually the praise of men. But here the Lord asking us to go into your inner room and to shut the door behind you. Again, does this mean that we should not pray in public, like right now, when we pray together in public assembly? No. But the, the instruction here, when I come to church to pray, I'm coming that I will be seen, I'm not coming that I will be seen by men. But it is between me and God only. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he prayed alone and he prayed in public. He went to the mountain alone to pray, as we read in Matthew 14, 23, and he went, spent all night alone in prayer, as we read in Luke 6, 12, and also he prayed in public in the presence of the disciples when actually he entered the synagogues uh, and the temple to pray. And when he told us, go into your room and shut the door behind you, he means you need to avoid earthly distractions. Don't pray in a place that you will be distracted and you cannot focus and you cannot pay attention when you pray. But also to enter into your room means actually to enter into your heart, the innermost 
part of your heart and mind and to close your heart and to close your mind from any distraction so you can focus only on the Lord Jesus Christ. As St. Augustine said, what are those big chambers but just our hearts themselves? Hence the door is to be shut means the fleshly sins is to be resisted so that the spiritual prayer may be directed to the Father which is done in the innermost heart where prayer is offered to the Father who is in secret. So when the Lord told us go into your inner room and shut the door mean to means you need to give your complete attention to God when you pray. Then in verse 7 the Lord told them and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And here I want to make it clear, what is forbidden is not much praying. And also what's forbidden is not praying in the same words because the, the Lord prayed a lot and he repeated what he prayed like in Gethsemane. But what he actually instructed us not to do is the vain repetition. The vain repetition. To pray without meaning. And he told us as the heathen do. In First Kings, Chapter 18, it is the story of Elijah when he said to the prophets of Baal, offer a sacrifice to your God, to your idol, and I offer a sacrifice. And let us pray and see who is the real God. Is Baal is the real God or the Lord is the real God? So actually they offered a sacrifice and they start actually to pray and to cry but they are crying to an idol. And we read in, in First uh, Kings chapter 18 verse 26 so they took the ball which was given them and they prepared and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon saying oh Baal hear us but there was no voice no one answered then they leaped about the altar which they had made and so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said cry aloud for he is a God either he is meditating or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. 
And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So this is an example of vain repetition. That's why the Lord told us, don't repeat the words in vain like the heathen do. So what's forbidden here, it, not the repetition itself, but the vain repetition. So as if he is saying, when we pray, we need to offer meaningful prayer, not to offer heartless and pointless prayer, but we need to offer meaningful prayer. Prayer is a communication with God, and it is a two-way communication with God. So when we pray, actually, we need to have time of silence to hear God speaking to us. As Samuel the prophet said, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So our prayer should reflect this relationship. So in verse 8, he told us, Therefore, do not be like them. Do not be like the heathen who do vain repetition. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. As I told you, it is a relationship. We ask God, although God knows what we need even before we ask him. Then actually, why God wants us to ask him? If he knows what we need, why God actually wants us to ask him? The more time you spend in the presence of God, the more opportunity you give to the Holy Spirit to work in you and to transform you. So actually, although God knows what we need, but He requests us to ask for our needs in order to be in His presence. And when we are in His presence, we are giving the Holy Spirit time and opportunity to work in us to cleanse us, to purify us, to transform us into his image. So God here is saying you need to uh, address and say to God what you need, although God knows that you, uh, your father knows these things. And by saying here in verse 8, for your father knows the things you have need of, the word your father means he is addressing his disciples. He is addressing the believers. He is addressing those whom he blessed in chapter 5, those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourners, the meek, the hungry and thirsty for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who suffer for the righteousness sake. These are the people whom God is addressing and whom God is saying, I know your needs 
before you ask them. Because they chose God to be their father, that's why God also assured them that he knows their needs and actually he will provide for all their needs. If we accept the fatherhood of God, then actually he will supply all our needs. Uh, so here God is assuring us when we ask we shall receive when we seek we shall find when we knock it will be open to us why because we chose him to be our father then actually he became interested in our needs and to provide for all our needs verse 9 in this manner, therefore, pray. And from verse 9, he told us the Lord's Prayer that all of you know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever in me. Maybe we, we, we notice that when we say it, we say it differently. For example, after we say, but deliver us from the evil one, we add, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we conclude it, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever in me. Why we add it in Christ Jesus our Lord? although it is not in the text. It is because God told us, when you pray, you need to ask in my name. He told us in the Gospel of John, until now, you did not ask anything in my name. Pray in my name, and your prayer will be heard, and your joy will be full. That's why the church added in Christ Jesus our Lord. So every prayer, we pray it in the name of Jesus. And in all our prayer, like Thanksgiving prayer, when we conclude it by the grace, compassion, and love of mankind of your only begotten Son, we added this because we want to offer the prayer in the name of Jesus. Even the other denomination, like the Protestant denominations, who do not add in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you hear a Protestant praying the Lord's Prayer, he will not add in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when they pray, actually, they conclude all their prayers by saying, in Christ's name or in Jesus' name, Amen. So although they did not add it to the Lord's Prayer, but they conclude all their prayers by saying, in Jesus' name, Amen. But we add it to the Lord's Prayer, so that every single time we pray this prayer and all other prayers, we offer it in the name of Jesus. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is composed of seven petitions. The three, first three are for the glory of God. When we say, uh, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, 
these three petitions to, to give glory to his holy name and to pray for the extension and expansion of his kingdom and also for the prevalence of his will. And the four other petitions is for our individual needs. Of course, no one can pray the first three petitions. Hallowed be your, thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Unless he is in complete obedience to God. How can you say your will be done? But in reality, you want to say my will be done. So this would be like vain repetition. If you are praying for your own will to be done, but saying by your tongue that you will be done, that's vain repetition. That's why nobody can offer the first three petitions who is in disobedience. But before the three petitions, God again emphasizes what kind of a relationship we have with God. By telling us, address God, our Father, who art in heaven. So here, our relationship with God is established as He is our Father and we are His children. And the word Father reflects the very tender relationship between God and us, His children. Actually, this new concept to address God, our Father, was very, very new concept for the disciples when they heard the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, he didn't say to pray, my Father who art in heaven, but saying our Father. So this also implies that all of us who are brethren, the believers are brethren. Because if I say my Father, this means I am not your brother. But by saying our Father, so it emphasizes my relationship with God, children, father relationship, and also our relation with one another as brethren. All the believers are brethren. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means to be holy, to be sacred, to be revered, reverenced. So we say we are praying that your name will be glorified will be reverenced every way. And here it is important to ask myself, when I behave, or is my attitude glorify the name of God, or as the Lord told us, that because of some of you, the people will blaspheme my name. Actually, he gave us his name, we are Christian, and the word Christian from the word Christ. So if we behave in the wrong way, and people will curse the Christian, then actually we are not hallowing his name. So, hallowed your name is more than just words we say, it, but this should be reflected in our behavior and our attitude. Everything we do, we should actually glorify the name of God which is called upon us. Thy kingdom come. 
which kingdom? Actually, we need to differentiate between the kingdom of the Son and the kingdom of the Father. St. Paul explained this in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Son reigns from the moment of his crucifixion till the end of the world. Then as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then he will deliver the kingdom to the Father. So here when we say thy kingdom come, we are speaking about the kingdom of the Father. Because we already are living in the kingdom of the Son. Because the kingdom of the Son started on the day of his crucifixion. That's why we call him our Lord, our King, and our Savior. So thy kingdom come, it's about the kingdom of the Father. And now we are praying that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Father may come, so all the corruption of the world will end, and only righteousness will, will, will prevail everywhere. Then we say, thy will be done. So the purpose of the prayer is to establish the will of God, not our own will on earth. As if we are saying, we want your will to be done everywhere and done by everybody. As it is done in heaven, so we are asking to be done here on earth. And by actually doing the will of God here on earth, as if we are participating in what God is doing. When we execute his will here on earth, here we are participating in what he is doing. So, when we pray, thy will be done, we mean that your perfect purpose will be accomplished on earth just as it is in heaven. And no one can pray this prayer sincerely unless my own will merged with the divine will or surrender to the divine will as the Lord himself prayed in Gethsemane to the Father saying, let it be not according to my will, but according to your will. That's why if I'm a disobedient and I'm praying that will be done, actually I am as if deceiving God and deceiving myself. Then we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Here we are bidden to ask for our bread, not for the future years, but for this day. Whether we ask for our earthly bread, our food and our, the money to support us, so this means we are asking day by day. We are not worrying about the morrow because we trust the morrow in the hand of God. But there are other interpretation, there are other transla translation for this text. For example, uh, the Coptic translation for this text means give us the bread of the morrow, 
the bread of the morrow. Pen oik en terasti mifnan emfau. Pen oik, pen means our oik means bread, and te of rusty tomorrow. So the Coptic text means the bread of the morrow. Give us today the bread of the morrow. And in another translation, pen oik vi ethneu. Vi ethneu, the bread which belongs to the age to come. So if the text means the bread of the morrow or the bread of the age to come, then here we are not speaking about earthly bread, but we are speaking about spiritual bread, about the, the spiritual nourishment. And some father said, maybe our daily bread here refers to the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the communion. So, either way, if you are asking for the earthly bread, then we are saying, give us today our daily bread. So, we are just we are content with what we have tomorrow and we are, uh, what we have today, we are not worried about tomorrow. But if we are praying according to the Coptic text, bread of tomorrow, then we are speaking about the spiritual nourishment. Then give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forget, uh, forgive our debtors. The Greek word for debt here means imply sin or trespasses. As we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And here I want you to notice that the emphasis, we ask God to forgive us in the same way and in the same measure as we forgive others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we are asking God, deal, us, deal with us in the same way, in the same measure that we use with others deal with us. So actually, if we forgive people all their trespasses, then God will forgive us all our trespasses. Then, we ask him to protect us from temptation and do not lead us into temptation. Of course, God never leads us into temptation, but the prayer here means preserve us from the temptation that might lead us astray. Hold our hand and lead us step by step into your kingdom. As we say in the Divine Liturgy, lead us throughout the way into your kingdom. So don't leave our hands, because if you leave our hands, then we will go astray and we'll be tempted. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You cannot also pray these words, lead us not to temptation, while you yourself put, put yourself in temptation. So we need to do our part to keep, out, uh, to keep ourselves away from temptation, 
then God actually will help us uh, and he, he will protect us from the evil one. And deliver us from the evil one who tempts us because one of the titles of Satan, the evil one is Satan. One of the titles of Satan is the tempter because he tempts us. For thine is the kingdom, the power and glory forever. Amen. So as we started by glorifying God, hallowed be thy name, we conclude by glorifying God. And I want you to notice that in all liturgical prayer, we started by giving glory to the Holy Trinity and ending, concluding by giving glory to God. Like in the Divine Liturgy, we start by glory and honor, honor and glory to the Holy Trinity, and then we conclude it before the fracture by saying that in everything, uh, your holy name may be glorified, blessed and exalted with your only begotten Son and uh, the Holy Spirit. So, in the same way in the Lord's Prayer, we started by glorifying God and we concluded by glorifying God by saying, for yours is the kingdom, you are the true king, the power, you are the only almighty, and glory, you are the only glorified forever. Amen. The rabbis, during the time of Jesus, used to teach their disciples a specific prayer to unify them and identify them as a community by using this special prayer. And actually, John the Baptist did this with his disciples. That's why he said to the Lord, teach us how to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples. So, in the same way, the Lord taught his children a specific prayer. And this prayer unifies all of us and identifies all of us as the children of God. And now we are members in the family of God. We are brethren and he is our father. Every Christian, every believer, whether in east or west, north or south, he is praying the same prayer. So this prayer unifies all of us and identifies all of us as children and brethren, children of God and brethren. And St. Augustine said, this prayer is so perfect that it sums up in only a few words, everything man needs to petition God. It has everything. We glorify God and we ask for our, all our needs in this prayer. From verse 14, the Lord, again, he re-emphasized the importance of forgiveness. Although this prayer has seven petitions, but the only petition that he Reinforce it is forgiveness. That's why in verse 14 and 15 he said, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why the Lord reinforced this petition? Because Nobody among us can say, I never sinned. So all of us, we are sinners. And because all of us who are sinners, then actually all of us, we need forgiveness. So if I need forgiveness, why I don't offer you forgiveness? If I want you to forgive me, 
why I don't forgive you. And that's why in order to live peacefully together as children of God, we need to forgive one another. Why there are conflict? Why people, they don't live in peace? Because they refuse to forgive one another. But if we learn to forgive one another and to forget, we will live in peace with one another. That's why the Lord makes it a condition to obtain forgiveness that we should have a merciful and a forgiving spirit. But if we are not willing to forgive others, then actually we will receive little forgiveness from God. In the same way we forgive others, in the same way we'll be forgiven. And actually, if we understand and we, if, if, if we acknowledge the magnitude of our sin before God and understand the degree to which God went to forgive us, he died on the cross to forgive us, then actually it will be very easy for us to forgive one another. So after he spoke about uh, almsgiving, and after he spoke about prayer, then he spoke about fasting from verse 16 to 18. He said, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Again here, the Lord is teaching us not to fast with the main purpose in our heart to be seen by men. Don't fast to show off and to impress others. So fasting in itself is required to help you to deny yourself before God and to help you to discipline your flesh and to develop self-control. But if the object to appear before others, then all the benefits of fasting are done. The idea of fasting is to devote and to dedicate this time of fasting to be a total time of spiritual uh, revival to devote this time on your relationship with God. But the hypocrites, the Pharisees, they used to disfigure their faces and to appear to the people with sad countenance. So when they ask them, why you look like this? They respond, because I'm fasting. So they are doing this actually to tell the people that I am fasting. But our self-denial and our fasting should be done before the eyes of God, not the eyes of men. That's why he told us, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Means look normal, look joyful. Don't try to send the message to the people, I am tired because of fasting. You need to look joyful. So that 
you do not appear to men to be fasting, but your father who is in the secret place, and your father who sees in secret place will reward you openly. Again, the emphasis here on the personal relationship between you and God, and whatever you do, you do it to be seen by God, not to be seen by men. After that, from verse 19, the Lord spoke about the earthly treasures and the heavenly treasures. In verse 19, he said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So he's saying, people who treasure garments and money here on earth, the unused garments are often become moth-eating. And unused coins sometimes rust. So these earthly treasures are temporary and quickly evaporate. Riches are not sin in themselves, but the improper use of riches is a sin. God gave us these riches to use them and to share them with others. And when we share them with others, then actually we are treasuring up for ourselves or laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And these eternal treasures last forever. So riches and wealth used for doing good is treasure laid up in heaven. Wealth and riches used for doing good is a treasure laid up in heaven. And this is actually the only way to invest our money. Because on earth here it will be gone. But when we keep it in heaven, it will last forever. So our wealth must be consecrated to God and used for his glory and as his works demand. Let's ask ourselves what treasures uh, we are investing in. Our, do, our, do we invest in heavenly treasures or earthly treasures? Then he spoke about the lamp, the light of the body. From verse 22. The light of the body is the eye. As he said, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if I don't see well, then I'll be in darkness, even if there is light around me. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is 
A new is darkness. How great is that darkness? What does this mean? Or where the Lord wants to go with this verse? He's saying, if my eye is diseased, then all what I see will be wrong. In the same way, my heart is the eye of the spirit. My mind, my heart, my conscience is the light of the soul. So if my mind or my heart or my conscience is also diseased, then I will see everything around me wrong. That's why many people have negative interpretation. They interpret everything wrong. Why? Because their heart is ill, is diseased. That's why they see, even when people do something good, they see it bad. Like the Pharisees, when the Lord healed on the Sabbath, they saw him as lawbreaker. He, he, he broke the law. So, the Lord is saying, now if your heart is dark, if your mind is dark, if your conscience is dark, all is darkness, then actually, when there is sin abiding in you, how great this darkness will be. So what sight, what inner sight do you have? Do you have enlightened sight by the Holy Spirit? Or you have dark mind, dark heart, and dark conscience. Where are your eyes directed? Are you seeing clearly into the eternal life? Or are you focused on the words of the world? If the light of your life is the darkness of this world, if your heart, your mind, your soul are focused on the darkness of this world, how dark your life will be. That's why the Lord is telling us, remove any filter, remove any barrier, remove any blinder that actually make you see darkness around you. And focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, focus on eternity, focus on heavenly, then the light in you Will, uh, will, you will see everything around you positive and enlightened. Then he spoke about two masters. In verse 24 he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despite the other, you cannot serve God and mammon. So I think the Lord here, he wants to give us example of people who have their eye enlightened and people who have their eye darkened. If your mind and your heart is focused on the treasures here on earth and the mammon is your master, then your heart, your mind will be darkened. But if your heart and mind are focused on treasuring or laying up treasure in heaven 
and you are serving God as your master, then the light in you, your, you will be enlightened. Nobody can serve two masters. Uh, the word mammon here means money or riches. But here the Lord uses the mammon as an idol, as a god we serve and we worship. And the word mammon originally means trust or confidence. So here the Lord means those who put their confidence and their trust in the money, in the mammon. So if God is not the object of your trust, something else will be the object of your trust, which most probably will be the money. So as if the Lord is asking us today, are you a servant of Christ or servant to your positions and the money? Who dictates your daily work? Is it Christ or the money? Does your desire for money, for fame, for recognition, have more influence on you or Christ has more influence in you? You cannot serve in the kingdom of light, Christ, and at the same time you serve in the kingdom of darkness, the world. You have actually to choose. Don't allow yourself to become a servant to the desires of the world. Then maybe somebody will say, I don't want to serve the world, but I am worried about what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. That's why the Lord from verse 25 to the end of the chapter, he assured us about we should not worry, we should not have an anxiety about these things. He told us, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or, what, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The Lord is saying, who is more important, life or uh, food? And if God gives you the life as a free gift, how come he will not give you the food to support this life? So here the Lord is encouraging us to have a, a heavenly perspective, to set our minds on heavenly treasures. God gave us life, and the life is higher than food. So definitely he will give us the food to sustain our life if you trust him. God gave you the body. He made the body. And because of this, actually, he will provide for the clothes that we put on our body. So if the body is more important than clothes and life is more important than food and God gave us life and body, definitely he will provide for other things. Then he gave us the example of the birds of heaven. And he told us, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather, gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? These birds of heaven, they do the works for which they were created. Different God, when he created them, he created them for certain work. And they do the work. And once they do their work, God takes care of them. So he's telling us, in the same way, God will take care of you if you do your work. Yes, God is not encouraging laziness or carelessness. But do you the work and don't worry after this. Do what you ever supposed to do and then actually don't worry. Because you are of more value than the birds of heaven. If God provides for the birds of heaven, definitely he will provide for your needs. Then actually God challenged us in verse 27. Do you think an anxiety can do anything for you? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So what is the use of an anxiety? Who by his anxiety can add anything to the, his life journey? Nobody. That's why he said, put your confidence in God and do your part and God will provide. Then he gave us another example from the lilies of the field. He said, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, for neither they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? In the same way, he spoke about the lilies of the field. These lilies actually, they, don't, they do only their work. They draw up sustenance from the earth, they drink from the dew, the rain, and the sunbeams, and then God actually make them grow and give them beautiful appearance. So all what we need to do is to do our appointed work. And after this, we should not worry. If we do our appointed work and trust in God, he will supply all our needs. For the Jews, the court of Solomon was the highest representation of human glory. So the Lord is saying, Solomon, the richest and the most magnificent king of Israel was not clothed in a robe of so pure a white like the lily that grows white in the field and today is and tomorrow will be thrown into the oven. So do not worry, do not worry and do not be anxious on what you eat or what you drink. That's why the Lord said in verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? This worry comes from lack of faith. That's why he said, O oh, you of little faith. So Christ here is alarming the rich and the poor. Alarming the rich 
of not using their wealth and their luxury in the proper way and alarming the poor for not trusting God with their necessities. So, as if God told us when your face is shaken, look at the lilies of the field, look at the birds of heaven, and then all your anxiety will be removed. This anxiety, as I said, it is expression of our lack of faith. Uh, that's why here God is reproaching us gently, or you of little faith. So do your duty, don't let your faith be shaken, have full trust in God, and you will see that you will lack nothing from these things. Uh, then God assured us in verse 32, For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Maybe the Gentiles, because they don't have God as their father, they worry. But we are children of God, and he is our father, so we should not worry. If we worry, then we be similar to the Gentiles, whom, uh, who did not choose God to be their father. But our Heavenly Father knows our need, and he will provide for all our needs. As if he's saying, if we are worried about the necessities of the world, then we will not be any different from the non-believers. What we make us distinct and different from the rest of the world, that we know for sure that we can rely on God, that we can trust on him. Uh, then actually, he concluded this chapter by saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about, them, about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, the promise here, if we seek first the kingdom of God, then all our earthly needs will be supplied. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we seek them, then he will provide for all our earthly needs. What he means by his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is the forgiveness of our sins. To be righteous through accepting Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, not relying on our words. And then he told us, he told us why you are worrying about tomorrow? Why you are burdening, burdening yourself with the, with, with the worry of tomorrow? Actually, it is foolishness to increase our present burden by borrowing to trouble from tomorrow. We need actually to think about today and to be grateful for the day, sufficient for the day, its own trouble. Don't burden yourself by worrying about tomorrow. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.